Hey everyone, welcome to Indie Film Grid, a podcast about indie films and indie filmmakers. I am your host, Timothy Patrick, but you, you can call me Tim. In this episode, I have an insightful conversation with Jeremy Wanick. He's a busy man. Not only does he work in visual effects, but he also works as an editor. We talk about his filmmaking journey and dive deep into editing and VFX. Let's get into it. And here we are with Jeremy Wanick. Uh, Jeremy. Thanks for being on the podcast, man. How you doing? Thanks. I'm doing great. It's happy to be. I'm happy to be here, Tim. It's uh, exciting to talk to you today. Yeah, it's exciting for me to talk to you, and it <laughs> should it should be exciting for our viewers because you're somewhat of a, a double threat. I I already mentioned in the intro that uh, not only are you an editor, but you're also in visual effects. Yeah, that's right. Yep. You're staying busy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very busy. Yeah, no, I think they, they go more hand in hand than a lot of people think, um, which we'll probably uh, discuss. Yeah. Here. So before we dive in, um, you want to give us a little background, uh, how you got into filmmaking? Um, yeah, sure. I, I read that you, you made over 50 films in high school. Please do elaborate on that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, um, uh, I got my first video camera in around seventh or eighth grade from uh, my grandma passed away. Um, I inherited a little bit of money and uh, I used that money to finally buy myself a camera. And I always, I always wanted a camera, but um, I just, uh, I don't know, it was weird growing up. I never had one, so I would do a little, just run around with my friends and play games and sort of act things out or act scenarios out. I never thought of actually like filming something until somewhere around eighth grade and then into high school. Um, it's usually my cousins and I, I was pretty close with two of my cousins. We made lots of short films. Um, like you said, uh, yeah, probably about over 50 and, uh, but usually lots of violence and, um, fighting. I was really into Mortal Kombat and that kind of thing. So, and horror movies. So they kind of, they're pretty violent and, uh, um, yeah, just not exactly what my parents preferred. I, I film, I'm sure. So what's um, the time frame here? You mentioned Mortal Kombat. Give us an era. What what decade is are we talking? Um, I guess it was the nine, like late nineties. Nice. Um, uh, it was I don't know. Yeah, lots of for some reason. Yeah, martial arts and stuff. I was always into, even though I wasn't in karate or anything as a kid. I was in Boy Scouts, even though I really didn't enjoy that. Uh, I wasn't much of an outdoors person, but um, but yeah, I just uh, um, the first thing I shot. Uh, we had a class in school. I forget what the name of it was, but one aspect of the class, we actually got to use a really cheap editing software, and um, it was the first time I ever cut something together, and it was it was really interesting for me. I, I actually hated the process just because it, it was very technical, and I didn't know what I was doing, but mm-hmm. um, but I realized like the power in that, because when I used to shoot stuff before that class, I would uh, basically have to shoot everything in order and basically kind of build it in the camera, and I didn't even think about a software that could, I could like nonlinear edit. Um, 
Mm-hmm. So that class kind of opened the door for me and it made me realize like, oh, it'd be cool if I could do something like that in my movies. So I started cutting stuff together when it was my own material, when it was my own stuff and it wasn't for class. I realized how much fun it was to edit and manipulate the footage and do things that um, I couldn't do before and adding sound effects and music. And uh, um, yeah, so I guess that's kind of where editing started kicking in was in high school. And um, I realized pretty quickly that that's what I wanted to do was edit. And uh, my, I think I was a junior in high school when my parents and I went out to California for the first time. And um, we were touring different schools and or looking at different schools. And we toured uh, this school called Video Symphony that um, had really great film and video editing training. Um, it was a year-long program. So I enrolled there. And then the next year after I graduated high school, uh, I moved out to LA by myself and um, went to school there for a while. And it was uh, it was really different. I mean, I'm, I'm from a small town of about 3,000 people and moving to Burbank, um, which was only about 50,000, 50 or 100,000. It's a pretty small town in LA or suburb, um, but it, it uh, felt huge to me. And just being around LA, it was a culture shock. And, mm-hmm. um, and you, you're coming from Minnesota, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, up north, uh, northwest. So it was around the border of North Dakota, Minnesota, um, kind of near Fargo, North Dakota. And uh, it was, um, yeah, I'd, I'd barely been to any major city. So it was very different living there by myself, being there 19. Uh, this training is a training facility more so than a school, actually. It wasn't an accredited school. It was more of a, a lot of the studios would actually send their employees there to keep their skills up to date. Um, so you'd have people from like Fox and uh, uh, NBC and just these different studios in the area would send their guys over there to train. So in my classes, I was 19, and I'd have like, these 40-some-year-old guys who have been doing it for a very long time and who are very good. And like, I remember one of my classes, um, he was one of the editors on 24 and, uh, Mm. all these crazy shows. And, um, so it felt, it felt very out of place, I guess, and kind of a fish out of water. And it, uh, it felt very weird and unusual. You must Um, have (laughs) soaked some of that up just through osmosis, you know, being in the same room with these great editors. It was was cool. Um, it was inspiring just to hear, because we go around the room and ask, why we were there and uh and that's where i would learn a lot of these stories and some of the people were on reality tv and that's where i knew where i learned reality tv was something maybe to stay away from because it sounded very grueling and long hours <laughs> and uh, you could get sucked into like these specific types of uh content like if you start doing reality sometimes it's hard to get away from it and you're sucked into that world and so mm-hmm. it kind of made me think about too what what thing do i want to be sucked into and i kind of always knew i wanted to do features um versus tv uh, even though things are changing now with televisions getting a lot more cinematic and it's a lot, the lines are kind of blurred, but, mm-hmm. um, I, uh, but yeah, after the training there, um, uh, kind of a turn of events, I ended up moving back to Minnesota and, um, just kind of a little discouraged. I think it was too much for me to take in at that age. I just wasn't quite ready mentally to handle that many changes and, uh, went back to living my hometown for a little while. And I went, school in Minneapolis. Um, it was actually a business college, but I majored in film production. And uh, I kind of got more of a general look at every aspect of filmmaking versus just film editing. Um, so I learned about lighting and uh, writing screenplays and mm-hmm. um, just everything. And uh, I kind of opened my eyes up to more possibilities of things to do. And I even thought about doing more camera operation and it kind of muddied things up a little bit as far as what my focus should be or what I should really do. And especially in uh, the Midwest here, there's not as much um, 
uh, things aren't so compartmentalized. Like in LA or New York, especially LA, you're kind of expected to know one thing. Like if you're an editor, you're an editor. You're not an editor and a director and a writer. And mm-hmm. um, it's hard to do so many tasks. But here in the Midwest, uh, you're kind of expected to be a jack of all trades. Um, so like the first job I got after the school here was um, at an ad agency that I worked at for two years doing uh, a lot of television commercials. And a lot of them were actually 1-800 commercials, which are uh, like for proactive. And um, uh, what are some of the companies? Um, uh, Hydroxetone and a lot of beauty products. And definitely it was not what I was intending to do. Um, yeah. Now, are those the infomercial style <laughs> where they're like an hour long or were those no, the 30 no, we second? Never, we never did no, yeah, we just we never did those. We always did the commercials, so it was always between 30, 30 seconds and two minutes. I think the longest commercial I ever did was two minutes. Um, hmm. But yeah, a lot of them were a minute long or so, and uh, which is still kind of long for a commercial. But it, uh, I don't. Know, I learned a lot about different camera codecs and working with different types of media and, uh, and editing fast and working with um, getting advice, I guess, and feedback from not just the producers, but also the director, the writer, the art director, um, the client, and trying mm-hmm. to balance all of these comments from all of these people and trying to figure out uh, like how should I put this thing together to please all of these people who have very kind of different visions. I'm glad you mentioned uh, Codex and uh, yeah. being able to work fast because I don't think uh, a lot of new editors uh, think about that. That if, if um, your footage isn't in the right codex, it's going to slow you down with rendering times mm-hmm. and all that stuff. Yeah. So you, in yeah. essence, you were uh, kind of streamlining uh, your workflow. Yes. Yeah, yeah. That was, that was, yeah, you're right. And that was probably the biggest thing I learned there was workflow because, yeah, like you said, um, I think today, just because the technology is so readily available, people are jumping into it at much younger ages, doing much more advanced things than they not that they should be, but they just—they're not trained in on the proper way to do a lot of things. And that was one thing that I took away um, from the schooling in LA was just how um, how important workflow is and everything upfront before you actually start editing. How important it is to organize your footage and name things correctly and make sure everything is in a specific codec that your editing program can handle, so you're not dealing with uh, like especially nowadays. Like a lot of the movies I edit um, are shot in 5K with the red and uh, if you have, I mean, it, a lot of computers can handle that natively, but it's, um, it's something to think about whether or not you need to convert it to ProRes or something that, um, your computer can handle, especially working with proxies now, um, like in programs like Premiere, it's really easy to link your footage to proxies. So you're still dealing with the full, this is getting technical and geeky. No, but, I'm soaking but, uh, it up. I like it. It's, uh, it's so easy now to switch back and forth between the full quality, like the raw red footage and the. Um, the proxy file that you make that uh, it's almost silly not to work with a proxy file that basically just a lower quality file that your computer can handle Mm -hmm. and it still look it still looks amazing and you're not losing any information we already mentioned that uh, new guys out there should consider the workflow is is there another mistake that uh, new editors make that you see repeatedly um yeah it's a good question um Let's see. Um, keyboard shortcuts, I guess, are pretty huge. Mm. I think uh, that was another thing at school um, uh, in LA that they taught a lot about was um, not using your mouse. Um, so, I mean, it, you have to use your mouse to some degree. You can't just get rid of it completely, but it is very important to map keyboard shortcuts to your keyboard or 
there's other devices you can get too that can help with that but even just the keyboard it's fine um it makes you so much faster and more efficient mm -hmm. when it comes to filmmaking and, and film buffs uh almost everybody's got a favorite director but uh not many people yeah. say uh that's my favorite <laughs> editor um, yeah, yeah sure do you do you yeah. have one that uh is kind of your hero or um i mean it, and this kind of yeah the stereotype i guess but a lot of editors who who would say their favorite editor i think a lot of people would say walter Merch just because he's mm. he's so out there as far as teaching and uh his books and um like his uh, rule of six um talking about like the importance of like what's most important when you're thinking about cutting from one shot to the next and uh yeah give us that uh, the rule of six yeah yeah um let's see if i can get this down uh i think the uh, the first one's definitely emotion um you always want to cut for emotion um like pretty much if, if you're making a cut it has to be emotionally correct um if you're cutting a comedy or whatever you're always cutting for humor or horror or whatever the thing is mm -hmm. um if it's not emotionally right it's not going to feel right and then second was story if it if does it move the story forward um like is it necessary to cut now and i think a lot of younger editors um, especially uh, older editors will say this a lot as far as like the the effect mtv used to have um on uh editing as far as that fast-paced um uh tempo i guess where everything was just very very fast and i guess unnecessary fast mm -hmm. unnecessarily fast where i think a lot of younger editors are kind of um, scared to hold on a shot too long because they're afraid people will lose interest they're like okay i'm getting bored i'm just going to cut but they weren't cutting because of any emotional connection to the the scene or the film it was always because um they were afraid of holding too long so i think uh so yeah that's what the story element has to do with um and then yeah i mean some of these uh, youtube guys um yeah i mean vlogging is a whole different thing but yeah. uh i think you know jump cut used to be a bad word but not anymore it's yeah. uh, it's know. a uh backbone of of their story thread in a lot of ways but um, yeah no for sure and then all this i'll i can flash off the last four because they're not as important and it's he has like a pie chart and emotion is i think at 51 percent. it's always it makes up it's more important than all the other five combined um so it's emotion story i think it's rhythm which has to do with the pacing of your scene and then eye trace uh just like with the, uh, the eye line in your scene and making sure people are kind of looking at each other mm -hmm. um and then uh, two-dimensional space and three-dimensional space um which they're not nearly as important like the 180 degree rule as far as uh, making sure if a person's facing one way mm -hmm. um, in one scene or in one shot or whatever, they shouldn't be facing the opposite direction, obviously, in the in the next shot and things like that. Um, uh, and that gets a lot deeper. But um, but yeah, the the rule of six and, and it's talked a lot about in his book, In the Blink of an Eye, which is probably the book I'd recommend more than anything um, for editors. It's it's pretty short. It's only I think it's only a hundred and some or maybe two hundred pages, and so it's a fast read and it's very insightful. Yeah. We'll put the uh, the link in the show notes for everybody out there. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be great. Um you mentioned uh, the young guys with their quick cuts. Um yeah. what what is it about the long takes that are valuable? Um yeah, I think uh <clears throat> it depends on the what the movie's about or the scene, but um I think being able to hold on a shot if, if there's 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 i guess if there's enough um going on in the shot if there's um let's see 
like Spielberg, uh, for instance, like there's a lot of shots in Jaws where he'll hang super long and different things. And he uses the camera in a way where the actors will um, sort of stage themselves differently throughout the shot where they might start out further away from the camera, but he'll find a reason to pull them closer. So sometimes the camera isn't even moving. It's just sitting in that one place. And if you're not, you're not even thinking about it, you'll see that um, you won't even realize that it went from a wide shot to a close up and within that one shot. So there's ways of making it more dynamic, just that sitting on that one shot. You don't have to cut to a close up. You can have your actors move around in the scene. Um, and that's another way to do it. But, um, but I don't know, sometimes sitting on, it's just building that pacing. Sometimes you want things to kind of start out slower and, um, and build and get faster and faster and more intense. Mm-hmm. And so starting out on like a wider shot and maybe holding on it for a while until the critical moment where someone, uh, like someone does something like plants a bomb underneath the table or something that you want to, an insert shot to maybe show the guy's face. He looks kind of suspicious and then cut to an insert shot of him putting something under the table or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then maybe the reason to move in, but it has to be a reason. It can't just be, uh, just because, um, you have to have something that motivates you to go in closer. Yeah. So when you've been working a while and no matter what you do, these cuts are not working. Uh, is that, I mean, is there such a thing as editor's block? Does that happen? And how do you overcome that? Yeah, no, it's, it's definitely possible. I think too, like you get tunnel vision if you edit for too long. Um, if you're working out a scene and trying to make it work and it just doesn't feel like it's working, you just keep going at it over and over again. Um, sometimes it's good just to walk away and take a little bit of a break and it's hard to do, um, or even just go to another scene, um, and -hmm. sort of table it and then come back to it. And a lot of times when you come back, um, I would say at least 50% of the time when I come back to it, I realize that it's, it's a lot easier to see it more openly because you were so focused, you're so close to it that you just can't quite see the big picture anymore. Mm-hmm. So when you pull yourself back a lot of times and give yourself some space and time, uh, you come to realize what was missing or you watch it back and it's like, oh, wow, this is actually working. Uh, this actually is good. And yeah. uh, how many editors um, actually cut to music? I mean, everybody says they do it. <laughs> and, you know, I've done it from time to time. Um, it, it does, you know, get you a, a solid beat to, to go to, but is that yeah. somewhat of a myth? Um, it depends. Like, uh, I think it can be used as a crutch. Um, it's, I think with narrative, if it depends on what you're editing, if you're doing like a music video, for instance, you definitely want that song in there. Mm-hmm. Um, cause it's going to be in there no matter what, it's not going to change. Um, there's other things like that. Sometimes montages, it's hard to edit montages without, if it's going to be a musical montage, uh, if you don't have music, at least a temp track, sometimes it's hard to get that pacing or that tone rate. Mm-hmm. Um, but otherwise, if I'm, if I'm doing a narrative scene with dialogue or uh, something like that, or even with suspense scenes, it's kind of nice to start without any music and just try to get it um, working without. Because if the scene works without any sound, if it works without any music or any of that, once you add that stuff in there, it makes it uh, so much better and it feels right. And then you can adjust your cuts based on the music or the sound that you end up putting in. But I still think uh, it can be used as a crutch because music can kind of blanket things. Um, If you have a good song, you can almost cut anything to it and it'll be, wow, this is really nice. (laughs) This is really good because people like the song and uh, it doesn't necessarily matter as much what the visual is. So I think it's good to to wait when you can Mm -hmm. to put music in a little later. You know, I've I've been noticing, uh, I'm not sure who the editor is, but he must be doing a lot. Um, A lot of work on trailers recently because... I saw a big influx of, of action movie trailers um, cut 
directly to the song. I'm talking the smashes, the explosions. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And, you know, they used to say, don't cut directly on the music, you know, like that, unless it's a montage or something. Yeah. Yeah. But this is just in your face. It's almost (laughs) a, a music video, but it's a trailer. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're right. No, it's definitely a trend. I see a lot, there's a lot of covers now happening where there's famous songs that are being covered and they're they're a little um, they're modified slightly or whatever to make them sound more horrific or whatever the genre is. But they um, that's happening a lot. Mm-hmm. And I think I guess it, it does make the the cuts a lot less invisible. Like they are very apparent. Like you definitely feel it. Um, and I think it's just it's it's sort of a trend. I think it'll end up going away again. They come in strides, I guess, these different things and these techniques. What's it like working with a director? Um, I mean, sometimes is he over your shoulder all the time and a different director is more hands-off? <laughs> uh, which way do you prefer? Um, I definitely prefer hands-off, at least at first. Um, I think uh, most, I've been pretty lucky. Most of the directors, at least the commercial world, they're very on top of you all the time. When you're doing television commercials, it's it's not only the director, it's everyone is um, watching things over your shoulder. And Mm -hmm. I even had an edit, one of the, one of the commercials I had to do, I had to do live in front of the client from beginning to end Mm because they had to get it done while he was there in the studio. We had an hour. That was awful. Um, I definitely don't ever recommend that, especially the client should not be in on the the edit, but and seeing like the, the seams, but, um, but as far as like films and stuff, um, I've been pretty lucky where the, the rough cut, the first cut I do, my editors cut, they let me do whatever I want. And, they're pretty open. And then, uh, after I get my cut done and I like where it's at, um, within a reasonable amount of time, I I mean, I would like to spend more time usually, but I only have a set amount of time. Uh, we'll sit down with the producer and usually producer, writer, director and review it and, um, write down lots and lots of notes and different ideas and uh, just different things to try. And then we'll go back and it depends on the director though, because, um, I guess as it gets further along the cut, the director gets more and more involved um, from from my standpoint. I know on major studio movies, a lot of times, like I've heard with Christopher Nolan and uh, some of those bigger directors, they're very much in the room the whole time, at least from what I've heard. And that definitely wouldn't be my style. Uh, it's kind of a little, it, seem, it seems like it shows a little bit of distrust with your editor. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, But it, certain directors I know, like James Cameron has very, very specific ideas and he, they're very good at what they do. Um, and maybe it makes sense for them to be in there to get what they want faster. But, um, but from an indie film standpoint, it is nice to have that flexibility to do what you want and then bring them in a little bit later and then collaborate as you go. And uh, it works really well. And and when you're doing your own cut, your first editor cut, um, how much of that are you relying on your own instincts versus, uh, the script or, or the storyboard? Um, well, for me, I'm always curious. I'm always surprised at how, uh, nice, nice screenwriters have been with me about this, but usually, um, I mean, you write the movie three times, you write it when it's written in screenplay form, and then you write it again on set when you're directing, and then you write it again in the editing room. So for me, I don't, uh, I usually won't look at the script. Um, cause I don't want it to, it's evolved past that at that point during mm-hmm. production, things have changed too. Um, and for me, I like looking at it as this is its own thing. It needs to stand on its own. No one's going to see the script at this standpoint. I'll look at the script if I need clarification on something like, what was this scene supposed to do? Uh, or if something, if something feels out of place, um, sometimes I look at the script, but, um, 
uh, the scenes will be organized well enough that I know the order they're intended to be in. So I get a pretty good idea just based on the organization of what what's intended to go um, like scene wise first and uh, to the last scene or whatever. So I don't know. I like to just do my own thing with it. And so far I've been able to do that, um, which has been really nice. And I am surprised sometimes with how much freedom I get, but it, it does always turn out pretty well. Yeah. I imagine uh, sometimes um, when the director's coming to check in on you, uh, maybe a scene that uh, he didn't get all the coverage or, you know, it's, it, 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 it's not working based on the footage. And then he comes yeah. in and you completely surprise him out of nowhere with, uh, you know, the, the right cut that moves everything forward. That's got to be a good feeling. Yeah, I know for sure. I mean, it's definitely the, it feels great when you can, um, and even when you have a lot, a lot of footage and sometimes you just hold on the one wide shot or something, mm -hmm. if there's a reason to do it, um, it is fun to play around with things like that. I don't know if I can make it work without that pickup. Um, it's nice. And sometimes I will put down, like I'll put a black screen with text that says uh, over the shoulder shot or whatever, or a pickup shot of this. Mm. Um, and then ask the director, hey, can we get this? <laughs> and uh, sometimes they can, and sometimes it's like, no, we can't get this. And so then you find different ways to make it work. And that's another thing too that I've realized is, um, especially when I was starting out, I would get really scared about can I make the scene work or is there enough there? And honestly, I think no matter what the circumstance, unless you literally shot 45 minutes worth of footage and it's supposed to be an hour and a half long movie, <laughs> you might not be able to make that work. But as long as you have a decent amount of footage, um, you can make anything work. There's always a way to make it work. Yeah, so your bread and butter for a long time uh, was editing. Why make the switch to uh, visual effects? I mean, <laughs> you did say they go hand in hand, but what made you... Uh, take the jump into VFX. Yeah, even starting in high school, most of the ideas I had involved some sort of uh, supernatural element or something that you couldn't really shoot or like I would have me falling off a rooftop and landing on my neck or something. Obviously, I didn't want to do that for real. So I got <laughs> into visual effects pretty quick just to kind of tell these stories that I wanted to tell. Mm -hmm. And um, it was really fun. It's cool trying to come up with a way to make something that's in your head. And, uh, um, and back then it was a lot harder. Now it's, it's gotten a lot easier with after effects and all the plugins. Um, you can do so many cool things. I guess it kind of came naturally then with, with editing, I would be say there was like an edit, um, that wasn't working because the person on, like say it's a two shot and the person on the left, I wish they were reacting a little bit faster to the person on the right. If it was a lockdown shot, especially, you could easily split screen it and have that person react at a different time. Uh, that feels better. Mm -hmm. And so like like Kirk Baxter, uh, uh, David Fincher's editor, he does a lot of that kind of stuff. And Fincher will lock down a lot of his dialogue scenes. So he's able to do that very easily and fast. Mm -hmm. And they have a very similar workflow to what I like to do, which is currently, which is editing in Premiere and then doing a lot of your effects and after effects because you can just throw them over there really quick, do the effect quick and throw it back to Premiere. And it works great to do these really quick little things. Um, like I even had a, uh, a director who told me that a shot wasn't working because the actor blinks at the end of the take and it just kind of ruins it. He just wanted them to be more stoic and just kind of staring. So I had to uh, remove the blink. And if I didn't have that visual effects background, I wouldn't have been able to do it. And it so it allowed me to keep the edit the way I wanted because that, that take was the best. There wasn't one that was better. Mm. So it gave me that option with visual effects. Whereas if I didn't know how to do that, 
I would have been like, okay, we'll find a different take, and it would have been a weaker performance, but they went and blinked at the end. So you can kind of get the best of both worlds. But again, once you go down that rabbit hole of, hey, I can remove blinks, um, then it's like, oh, wow, you can do anything. You can do all these little micro adjustments, and mm -hmm. uh, you can go down a crazy rabbit hole of, oh, this, this movie didn't have any effects in it, or it only had 10 or something. Now it has 100, because um, there's all kinds of little adjustments. But it, uh, it does make your movie better, and so that's kind of how I ended up uh, getting sucked into it, I guess, and kind of going <laughs> down that way. Now, uh, you, you mentioned you had some training in uh, video editing, um, but as far yeah. as effects go, was that all self-taught? Yeah, pretty much. Um, yeah, it's mostly self-taught. I mean, I've taken training online, like online courses and lots and lots of tutorials. I think that's when you're learning visual effects now, um, there's obviously schools that do training, and um, it's a, which is a great place to network. And that's kind of how I see film schools. It's they they have equipment that you might be able to get access to, and um, and they have software and all this expensive stuff, and also the networking. But at the same time, things are so much cheaper now, and the training, a lot of it, you can find online or in books. Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of the road I took. So I won't have to spend as much money. I can kind of do it cheaper and I'm at my own pace. When it comes to visual effects, how much of a of a understanding of um, photography and and lighting um, play a part in, in pulling off the effect? Yeah, that's huge. Um, yeah, I do a decent amount of photography just for fun, and uh, it is huge. Just understanding composition too, and um, just how to make something look nice uh, and look correct. And honest, and honestly too, you don't necessarily have to have the knowledge at hand most of the time. You just need to know uh, what resources you can pull from uh, to find good reference material for whatever you're doing. Uh, so you can basically kind of look at it and copy, uh, imitate real life or something natural if you're making something artificial, especially the lighting. If you're trying to make a day for night shot, looking at a lot of shots that were actually shot at night mm -hmm. are very helpful just to see um, how the light plays and the shadows and yeah. so now, do you work with uh, motion capture much? Um, no, I've never done that. We've talked about it on different things, but it's uh, um, and there's definitely some independent films that are doing it, but it's uh, it's not as big um, yet. I think that's going to take a while yeah. uh, for indie films to really catch on to some of that, just because it is it's costly to do it correctly. Um, you need bigger teams, and it's not something we've we've uh, tapped into yet, but. Uh, I'm sure it'll come come about eventually, especially with, well, movies like Avatar and some of the crazy stuff that's even beyond motion capture. Some of the stuff they're doing, mm -hmm. um, well, where I think the indie film community is probably 10 to 15 years always behind some of that crazy technology. So I imagine in 10 or so years um, there'll be a lot more of that at smaller budget level. But well, you know, I was I was thinking to myself about the new iPhone. And the uh, the emoji app that uh, you know maps your face and moves its oh, mouth yeah. in real time, and then I was yeah, thinking yeah. about the face mapping in uh, you know Snapchat, and yeah, it made me think. Well, geez, in 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 fifteen years, it's going to be automated. All this stuff, you know, yeah. it's yeah. Uh, you might not have a job. <laughs> yeah, no, it's not at all. well, editing, editing, I'll be able to do that. Oh yeah, <laughs> hopefully. But even though they do have, they have software too that can cut things together. <laughs> they had a trailer for some movie that I can't remember what it was now, but um, they did a test where they put the the clips, I guess, and a bunch of metadata into the software, 
that this guy made and it cut a trailer. Um, so this robot cut a trailer <laughs> wow. uh, and it was good. It actually, it honestly looked pretty decent. The problem though is um, robots, at least as far as I know, <laughs> don't have emotions. And um, like going back to Walter Murch's rule of six, the most important thing is emotion. Right. And no matter what, a robot or a machine would have to fake that emotion. And it's something, uh, something so intricate and it'd be very hard to design something that can really do that. Um, so it'll be a while. I'll probably be dead before uh, editing gets taken over by a robot, at least. <laughs> but visual effects, you're right, though. Honestly, there's there's a new camera they're talking about, the cameras that that can... Um, it has metadata in the clip, so basically eliminates rotoscoping, so you don't have to trace around objects to separate them from the background or green screen. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it has like in, like depth information. So if you're trying to cut someone out of a scene... It has information, so you could basically, uh, even if you shot them just in the middle of a parking lot, you could cut them out of that footage, like basically automatically. Wow. And um, and also even fix the focus. If the focus is off, you could fix it later in post. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem with all of that stuff, though, too, is like uh, the file sizes. I can't even imagine how big the file sizes will be. Um, it's going to take quite a while for that stuff to catch up, too. Right. But but it is it is coming though. Like there will be a lot more automation, even tracking like you're talking about where things are tracking to the face um and that would be cool if there's a program that could do it faster like that like a professional program because right now mocha is pretty great but it it still takes time to track those images if it could do it in real time uh get some of that speed that would be nice oh yeah so is is the majority of your work uh compositing and like you said rotoscoping taking things out wires um people you don't want in the scene yeah, a lot of what I do is compositing. It's uh, tracking shots and rotoscoping, like digital cleanup or enhancing practical effects. A lot of what I do, and this is what I prefer to do too, is versus, like, say there's a monster in the scene or whatever. Um, it's not, it's not as cool to me to make it completely CG unless it's something insane. But if you can do a lot of it practical and then just enhance it digitally, mm-hmm. just having that practical element to it and blending it with CG, it makes it so much harder for the audience to tell. When you go to the movies and, and uh, the layperson out there is like, oh, that CG was so bad. What are they really saying? <laughs> what, what do you hear or what do you see when you look at that same bad CG? Uh, well, one way to look at it is a lot of times, like especially on bigger studio movies, um, they'll have some of the effects they'll send off to smaller studios that, um, that honestly just don't have the, the kind of, not necessarily just not even the talent, it's just they don't have the hardware or anything to produce as good of results as they could have. And some movies get, uh, because of the time crunch, the time crunch too is getting, everything has to be done so much faster and so much more is expected now because of all the digital technology that um, the crunch times are crazy. And I know a lot of stuff is actually rendered uh, without certain passes or they have to make some sacrifices. Um, So there are times where, they know it or they could make it look a little bit better, but the movie wouldn't have come out in time. Yeah. Don't um, you, you see that with uh, trailers, usually the first trailer, yes, right? Yep. You're like, well, yeah, that the, doesn't the, look done. Yeah. The trailers sometimes they'll actually have rough effects put in. And, I, and honestly, I think sometimes it's the studio, they'll have their in-house people do some of the effects before they, they send it to digital domain or Weta or ILM or whoever. Um, so sometimes they, they will actually put temp effects in that, the general public might not notice, even though, I don't know, everyone kind of has a keen eye for that kind of stuff now, and it, it's getting a lot harder to fool people. So what's, what's, what does the future 
uh, have in, in store for you? Are you going to continue down the path of uh, visual effects and editing, or is there yet another thing you want to you want to <laughs> summit? Um, I don't know. For me, um, I really do like editing and um, and visual effects. I, I can see myself continuing to do both of those things, probably moving forward. And I guess my main thing is just to keep uh, uh, working on challenging projects and bigger budgets and um, just continuing to network and see what happens. Um, I, I wouldn't mind necessarily directing something down the line as well. Um, cause I, I have directed short films and stuff like that, of course, but, um, directing a feature might be kind of fun to do one day, but we'll see. Sure. Yeah. Do you have any projects you want to promote or, um, websites or anything? Yeah, sure. Um, I guess people can find my work at www.jeremywanick.com and that'll, I'm sure that'll be in the show notes. They can spell my last name. <laughs> For sure. Uh, and Twitter handle is Jer- at Jeremy Wanick and, um, I guess as far as projects go, uh, I just finished um, visual effects on this Elijah Wood produced movie called Corpse Tub, um, which is very strange, uh, dark comedy. Uh, and it's got uh, Sam Huntington, Kate Nakushi, uh, uh, I can't think that's how you pronounce her name, and Dan Harmon and uh, Taika Waititi and all these um, great comedic cast. Uh, that movie is going to be pretty funny. The stuff, I've, I just did visual effects on it, so I've only seen 15 shots in it, but it's... Uh, it looks hilarious and really funny, um, and that'll be coming out early next year, I would assume. So that'll be Corpse Tub will be one to look for. <laughs> and then, uh, and lastly, uh, um, I added this movie recently called Apocalypse, which is a combination of uh, zombies and hockey players. Um, it's a weird <laughs> zombie hockey mashup uh, dark comedy. Very, very comedic and weird and definitely doesn't take itself seriously, but it's, it's a blast and... Uh, you can find the trailer for that online if you just go to YouTube and search for Apocalypse. Um, that is a great I, title. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty funny. I remember it It didn't float off the, the tongue quite as well to me at first, but now literally whenever I'm talking about like Apocalypse Now or any other movie, I accidentally say Apocalypse Now, and, which we <laughs> talked jokingly about for the sequel. And um, But you can also follow that on Facebook.com forward slash Apocalypse. Awesome, man. Well, Jeremy, thanks for being on the podcast, man. You you shed a lot of light on editing and visual effects, and it'd be it'd be great to uh, talk to you again sometime. Thanks. Yeah, no, I'd love that. Yeah, it's been great. Thanks a lot, Tim. Well, that's that. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Indie Film Grit podcast. Feel free to check out the show notes at indiefilmgrit.com. Follow us on Twitter at Indie Film Grit. And don't forget, subscribe to us on iTunes. Well, I should really wrap this up, but before I go, let me ask you something. Do you have the courage, the passion, and the perseverance to make indie films? Do you have enough indie film grit?